Welcome back to another episode of New Books in African American Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, James West, and joining me today is James McGrath Morris to talk about his widely acclaimed new book, Eyes on the Struggle, Ethel Payne, the First Lady of the Black Press. In this groundbreaking biography, Morris explores the life and accomplishments of pioneering black female journalist Ethel Payne, who played a major role in documenting the civil rights struggles of the 50s and 60s, before going on to become the first female African-American radio and television commentator on a national network. Morris's other books include Pulitzer, A Life in Politics, Print and Power, which Booklist placed on its 2010 list of the 10 best biographies, and The Roseman of Sing Sing, A True Tale of Life, Murder and Redemption in the Age of Yellow Journalism, which the Washington Post named as one of its best books of the year. His most recent work is The Ambulance Drivers, Hemingway, Dos Passos, and A Friendship Made in Lost and War, which is forthcoming in April. Good morning, James. Good morning. Glad to be with you. So we're going to be talking about uh, your new biography of Ethel Payne and her career um, as as, uh, kind of a pioneering female journalist in the the black press. Um, Before we get into the book, um, if you can tell our listeners just a little bit about... um, kind of your previous work and, and how you came to, to write about Ethel Payne. Certainly. Um, well, I'm a, bi- a biographer and a writer of what people now call narrative nonfiction or narrative history. Um, and I've written several biographies before redoing this one, and they've been centered on the lives of journalists, perhaps most famously my, my big book, the one that people use for a doorstop rather than read, is the biography of Joseph Pulitzer, the man after whom the prize is named. I'd also written a biography of a 19th century newspaper editor. Um, And uh, when I was looking for a new project, uh, I began compiling lists of 20th century journalists. And the name of Ethel Payne appeared on it. And frankly, I knew very little about her. I'm not sure I knew anything about her, uh, to be fully honest. And I looked her up using the same things most of us did. She had a Wikipedia entry and a few mentions here and there in an obituary. And I thought, here is this remarkably significant black female from the 1950s who was a leading civil rights reporter for the single most important African-American newspaper published at that time. Somebody's bound to be working on this story. It's such a good story. So I began doing the things most writers do to try to sort that out. I contacted people at various universities, looked at people who had written articles about her to see if they were writing a book, and none of them were. And finally, I consulted with two of the three or two of the four archives that held her papers, and neither of those archives had ever processed or even opened up uh, the boxes of her papers. So I knew it was a story for my, for my telling, and, uh, and that's how I embarked on doing it. Um, so you, you mentioned the, a few of your previous works, obviously um, a figure like Ethel Payne, quite different from someone like Pulitzer, both kind of racially gender aspects. Um, did you kind of adapt your your approach in terms of research for this or did you essentially approach it in the same way that you have approached previous work? Oh, I, I think, you know, I, I was trained as a journalist originally, and then I also spent years as a teacher, and there's some commonality in it. You prepare for each thing using the same skills, but apply them differently. And, of course, for me as an older white American male to write about a black female uh, is a, a gender and race jump that's 
that would have been different than writing about Pulitzer, although Pulitzer grew up as a Hungarian Jew, which is a very different experience that I had. Um, the one skill that I brought to all of the books I've written about journalists, including another book that's coming out in the spring, is I've worked out methods to use their reporting to animate um, my writing. Rather than quote at length their accounts, I often use their accounts as the underpinning of my version of events. So traditionally, um, writers used to say something like, Ethel Payne arrived in Little Rock, Arkansas. And then you and then the next day she published in her paper this account of events or something like that, and then you have her words. Instead I would use her account to animate my narrative and then I would use the only the quotations that I thought sang or, or added something. And that way my voice um, would would be consistent throughout the book and, and you'd feel like you're reading a story. That said, I did something also very different with this book than I haven't done with others. Because she was on the front lines of the civil rights struggle in the United States at a really seminal moment, um, and the title of the book reflects this, I wanted readers to see her version of events. That's why the book is called Eye on the Struggle, as opposed to my version of events. So what I was selecting from her journalism was an opportunity to give Americans a chance to see the civil rights events through the eyes of a black woman rather than filtered through the eyes of a historian years later. Um, and I think one of the problems in civil rights history in the United States is there's an enormous legacy of racism that still exists in scholarship and in what gets published and how it gets published. So you're right, I, I, did, um, I did make a number of changes in my approach to do this particular book uh, that would have been different than my prior books. Um, I'm sure our listeners would be interested to hear a little bit more about your um, your kind of process for writing. I mean, you obviously mentioned uh, the Pulitzer book in particular being you know, this kind of doorstop piece. This book is a, a 450 pages plus. Um, so, I mean, how what kind of duration are we talking about? How long has this project been in the making? Um, this one was probably two and a half years, maybe three um, but one of the things to keep in mind is that if you go to a, a lawyer to help you buy a house and it's the first time they're doing those documents, they may take 10 hours to do it. The next customer walks in and says, I want to buy a house. They take three hours because they've already developed their expertise in, in, in their first house closing. I had written and knew a lot about the civil rights movement, and I had written and knew a lot about American journalism history. So my learning curve was very different than somebody else approaching it. So in many ways, the two, two and a half years represents also a lot of years of accumulated intellectual capital that I approached to it. So when she would go to um, cover the Montgomery bus boycott in uh, 1955, I, I knew those events backwards, so I didn't have to do that kind of research. Uh, my research was more laser-focused in that sense. Um, so that, that changes the writing process, whereas my next book, which comes out in the spring of 2017, is a, a dual biography of John Dos Passos and Ernest Hemingway, and I had to do a lot of reading for things that I was unfamiliar with, including uh, rereading a lot of Hemingway's works and reading for the first time some of John Dos Passos' works. So each book has its own learning curve. But traditionally, writers of nonfiction like myself get typecast, um, 
no one's going to jump to offer me a chance to write a biography of a ballet star. Um, they're more interested in having me write about an area that I know, and, and that's why two and a half years to three years is actually a reasonable time for a book like this. Um, you've also just quickly mentioned um, your use of archival holdings, and obviously you've, you've visited you visited a great number of, of archival collections, both in relation to pain and then, you know, people like George Meany, Gerald Ford, Truman, uh-huh. etc. Um, I was wondering if uh, there was any kind of particular collection that it was, you know, kind of a joy to get into, um, and if you had any kind of difficulties um, getting access to these kind of collections. I didn't have, well, yeah, actually I did have some difficulties. Um, at first, um, a couple of the archives that had not processed the papers, and those people who are among your listeners who know about archival work know that what that means is they've they accepted the papers from somebody, but they've never opened up the boxes to index them, to put them in acid-free folders, to, to do the kind of work they do. Um, they were very reluctant. In fact, they turned me down to let me see them. And, uh, and I had to apply a little, uh, should we call it, archival political pressure from the right places to open those boxes up. Um, the one that gave me the most pleasure is, um, is a typical writer's story. And uh, in, 19, in the 1950s, uh, President Eisenhower got very upset with Ethel Payne in a press conference, but I only had the printed transcript, so I couldn't tell the timbre of his voice. And on a trip across the U.S., I drove to Abilene, Kansas, which is the um, home of the uh, presidential library, the Eisenhower Presidential Library. And it's really very different than other presidential libraries. It's a much more modest operation. It's the uh, architecture is very much 1950s brick. Um, you really feel like in the town, uh, Abilene, you feel like you've gone back into into time. I mean, it's it's really quite a remarkable uh, place that's been untouched by the changes in America. So I went there and I discovered that uh, Eisenhower's press conferences were there were audio tapes for them. They weren't of the greatest quality, but nonetheless, you couldn't hear often the questioner, but you could hear Eisenhower for sure. And the archivist helped me set up the tape on a, on a you know, looping tape, and we listened. And I got to hear Eisenhower actually say the words. And when he came to the you, uh, referring to Ethel Payne, the, the, the tone of his voice where he went, you, was so clear that I was angry and furious. And, and I, I had one of those moments, aha, I got it. Uh, which I would have never gotten from um, from a print archive because you you couldn't tell from the print transcript. Um, only from eyewitnesses could you tell that he was angry. And you know I don't always trust eyewitnesses. Um, they're not always the most reliable forms of uh, of research. Hmm. Um, okay, let, let's turn our attention to, to Ethel Payne um, from on then now. So um, if you could maybe just uh, give listeners uh, just a brief overview of, of um, Ethel Payne's um, life, basically. Certainly. Um, Ethel Payne was born in 1911 in Chicago, on the south side of Chicago. Chicago, like all northern American cities, was deeply segregated, but segregated by custom and by economic means, not by law, so vastly different from the south. An African-American growing up in Chicago, Detroit, would have stood a better chance at a, at a some sort of decent economic life and growing up in the South. Her father was a Pullman porter. Pullman porters were um, a very rare working opportunity for Northern African-Americans that and working for the U.S. post office jobs. Uh, post, post office was the two best jobs a black male at the beginning of the 20th century could get. But he died very young. 
Um, and she was raised by a single widowed mother uh, who was a church-going woman whose church, the St. John's AME Church, was across the street. And she was raised in an unusual household, one that believed uh, deeply in reading, deeply in education. And because, as I mentioned, segregation was by custom and by other means, Ethel Payne was able, and her brothers and sisters were able by walking to obtain the services that white Chicagoans had. They went to white libraries, they ended up going to white schools. Um, and in particularly important, Ethel Payne's experience at her high school in Bloom, uh, in many ways, uh, treat, prepared her for a career in which she'd function in a majority white society. She was one of two or three African Americans there, and learned a lot of skills that you couldn't teach in a classroom, but you could teach her experience. When she got her education completed after some community college and some other things, she began looking for a professional job in the form of writing in Chicago. And all those doors were closed. Seven out of ten black women in Chicago and then at that period who held jobs, held jobs as domestic servants. So she responded for, to an advertisement to become a service club hostess in Occupied Japan and, and uh, right after the war. And Occupied Japan was run by General MacArthur, and even though Truman had desegregated the troops, MacArthur had not followed out that order. So she was a service club hostess for black soldiers stationed in Japan. And a number of interesting things happened to her there, um, which I'm shortening and we could talk about later, which led to her getting a job for, with the Chicago Defender in Chicago. Now, for most Americans, and what I'm seeing by most, I'm saying for most white Americans, there is very little knowledge about the functioning of an African-American press in the 20th, 19th and 20th century United States. Um, the Chicago Defender was no, no more merely a Chicago newspaper than, say, the New York Times is merely a New York paper. It had national circulation, was terrifically significant in the black population in the United States. In fact, if you read Isabel Wilkinson's book, The Warmth of Other Summers, you learn about how the paper helped prompt the mass migration to the North, and both its reporting on the horrors of the South, but as well as portraying the better life that was offered to to African-Americans who became known as the promised land of Detroit, Chicago, and other places like that. And that's one of the reasons why Chicago and those other cities, in a sense, became black cities later in the 20th century and elected people like Mayor Washington. So when she went to work for the Chicago Defender, she was working for a newspaper of national significance with its devoted readership all the way across the United States. And she's eventually sent to Washington, D.C. to become its national correspondent. And what she's doing is she's covering both the legislative and the judicial front lines of the civil rights movement for a readership for whom these issues really mattered. Um, white Americans really, in many ways, even if they were liberal, remained unaware of, of what was going on. And so her, she was activating African Americans by her reporting. It wasn't that she was an advocate in her copy. It's not like what we see on TV today where people yell and scream at each other. She was merely using the power of journalism to light the dark recesses to illuminate things that were going on. So when laws were being passed, she would she would highlight what was wrong with them and, and the audience would respond to them. And more famously in a minute, I'll get to what she did when she went to the physical front lines of the civil rights movement. So she functioned and became a celebrated journalist to 15% of the American public and virtually like all African-American institutions at that point, operating complete invisibility to white America. Um, in areas of Chicago, they were 
banks that served African Americans. There were cosmetic companies that had national sales. There were uh, funeral parlors, all these kinds of institutions. And they operated on the other side of the segregation line. And white Americans, you know, on the whole, remained completely ignorant of it. So she became um, widely known, particularly because she was a correspondent in um, the White House during Eisenhower's time. And when she joined the White House press court, there there were two other African-American members of the uh, press court at that point. There was uh, uh, a male who was a Republican and Alice Dunningham, a woman who'd come up from the South. But as a whole, they remained rather quiet and didn't, didn't challenge the president. And Ethel Payne in 1954, this is right after the um, Lincoln Day celebrations, and so it would be February of 1954, came to the White House rather angry and, and rather ticked off because the Republicans had held their annual Lincoln Day dinner. And Lincoln Day is very important to Republicans because Lincoln is the founder of the Republican Party. And in 1953 and 54, Republicans were ecstatic because for the first time since the Depression, they controlled the White House. So they felt they had a lot to celebrate. They invited free choirs to sing at their performance in Washington, at which the president was going to attend. Two of the choirs were from white universities in the South, white private universities. And the third choir was from Howard University, the traditionally black college of Washington, D.C., Well, the bus carrying the Howard Singers was turned away from the event by the police and not allowed to enter the facility. Now, anyone who knows Washington at that time would not have been surprised. The city was a deeply segregated city, despite being the national capital. But no one had paid attention to this. So when Ethel Payne went to the press conference, she asked a question of the president. Now, keep in mind, asking a question of the president might be nerve-wracking for most people. But she's black and she's female. So when she says, Mr. President, Mr. President, she's got 200 white male faces turning around at her, looking at her as, you know, who, do you are, who are you to ask the president a question? So she asked Eisenhower about this. And he's a smart politician. He said, well, I don't know what happened. I'm only the president. You know, I didn't organize the event. But if these kids were turned away for race reasons, that was wrong. And we'll look into it. Well, my, a minor little, you know, answer and question. But what she learned is that the next day, the Washington Post, for instance, which prides itself on local coverage, had to write a story about how the Howard University Choir was turned away. In other words, Ethel Payne discovered that by merely asking a question of the president in a public forum like a national press conference, she was forcing the mainstream media, i.e. the white media, to begin reporting on issues of importance to civil rights. And I can tell you many more tales about that, but you may want to intercede with another question so I don't dominate the whole show. Um, No, that's fine. Um, I thought we could maybe back it up a little bit um, just to talk about... um, Payne's earlier life because she she actually comes to the I mean she's she's always had maybe um, dreams of being a writer but it's something that she comes to relatively late in her career. Um, she is she's forty one when she gets to begin her career. Um, so if you could say a bit about um, you know maybe the kinds of things she did prior so you, obviously you've mentioned she uh, she went to, to to Japan to work for the for the U.S. Army. Oh she yeah. Um, and how, how those things might have um, informed her subsequent role as a journalist. Well, you know, as a biographer, there's a temptation to look at a person's life as unfolding to doing what they end up 
being famous for. Um, so even with that danger in our mind, um, Ethel Payne's life between being a teenager and eventually at age 40, 41, becoming a national journalist are a series of events that really prepare her well for what she's going to do. Um, for instance, um, in 1941, when uh, e. E. Philip Randolph, the head of the Pullman's Union, and others uh, were very upset with the, um, this is just before the United States entry into the war, and we're beginning to build armaments, they noticed that A, the military is still segregated, and B, all of the jobs that are now coming as a result of defense spending are going to white employees. In fact, one newspaper reported that in touring the uh, airplane factories near Los Angeles, they had discovered in the terms of that year, era, one Negro who was employed, and he was employed sweeping the floors. So they confronted Franklin Roosevelt and said, we're going to bring a million men to march on Washington to demand that these jobs be equally distributed to African Americans and that the military be desegregated. Well, Roosevelt, on the eve of the U.S. entry into war, was panicked. The idea of having a million African Americans descend on a segregated city in which they wouldn't be able to get into restaurants and hotels and disrupt everything and show a lack of American unity was terrifying. So he um, he gave in uh, up to a point. He created the Equal Opportunities Commission and didn't give in on segregating, desegregating the uh, military. But it was some movement. So in return, A. Philip Randolph um, uh, revised his plans and called it the March on Washington Movement and created these huge events in each city to keep the pressure on the president. And Ethel Payne joined the effort in Chicago. So here she is uh, as an organizer in Chicago, a young woman, working for this movement, and she discovers that the men in charge in Chicago basically are interested in having her type things but not have a leadership position. So she challenges, she calls A. Philip Randolph on the phone as well as writes him. And keep in mind, he is perhaps the single most important African-American in that, in that moment in American history. And here's this untrained activist in Chicago saying, look, if you don't give me a position of responsibility and you don't tell the men here locally to respect me, I'm out of here. Um, and so what you see is the, her character of, of, of not letting closed doors bother her. Um, her ability to advocate for herself gets developed in moments like that. She got arrested at one point for standing up for some others that she saw being arrested. She joined the NAACP. She wrote W.E.D. Boyce a letter at one point saying, I'd like to write your biography. I know it takes research skills and writing skills and nerves. I don't know about the first two, but I certainly have a lot of the latter. And that's a very good observation. What was happening to her in her frustration in trying to get jobs and her frustration in being an activist, civil rights activist, was an, a, a personal empowerment, a training on how to how to function, how to deal with the, the male-dominated world she was in. And also, particularly because she had these skills, how to function in a, in a, a white majoritarian society. You know, when to remain silent, when to push, and how to use those tools to advance your cause. So all of those things contributed to her. And then most famously, when she went to Japan, she discovered in Japan a number of things that she thought were startlingly interesting. She had the instinct of a reporter, but not the training. Uh, one person once said to me that he thought she was very much like a jazz artist learning in the band as opposed to learning in a formal school. So one of the things she noticed in Japan is it's a deeply destitute country after World War II. 
and the male population has been decimated. So there are a lot of young women looking for companionship. And the, the island was flooded with young American soldiers. You know, these are soldiers 18 to 22 with money in their pocket and a short and time, you know, and leave. So a number of Japanese women created relationships with American soldiers. And as a result of that, there were a number of babies born. Now, in that era, a white and Japanese uh, child was not problematic as much as a black and white, a black and Japanese child, uh, interracial child that combined those two was was deeply problematic for the Japanese, who were very um, uh, xenophobic and 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 homogeneous. And a lot of those babies were abandoned or sent to orphans or in, uh, orphanages, or in some cases killed. So there was a problem for Japan for these babies, but it was also a deep problem for the American military. American military commanders at that point were mostly Southerners, and in their communities back home, the mere idea of a black man and a white woman just seeing each other or winking at each other or having a conversation could actually result in the death of the, of the black male. So that soldiers under their command were fathering mixed-race children was an enormous problem for those in charge of the military occupation. So Payne was watching all of this, and she had no place to report it. So in a sense, she wrote it up for her diary, if if you could think of her diary as a publication. The Korean War broke out, and Alex um, Wilson and uh, another reporter uh, from a black newspaper came to Japan because the Korean War was a big story, but it was also a big story for uh, black newspapers in the United States. The troops were still segregated, and they were being sent to the front lines uh, at a greater rate than the white soldiers. They weren't being re uh, placed by other soldiers because MacArthur only would replace a black soldier with a black soldier. So it was an important story, and the only way you could get to it was to get, through Japan, get to it through Japan because Japan was the headquarters for the uh, forces uh, fighting in, in Korea. So they met Ethel Payne, and Alex Wilson heard her stories about these, these mixed-race babies and persuaded her, and I say persuaded her because I think we... we we can honestly know that she was clearly aware of what she was about to do to lend him his her diaries so that he could get them back to the paper in Chicago. Uh, she sort of feigns innocence in her remembrance of the incident, but she was turning over her work to the her the paper she'd grown up with that was she thought was nationally significant. And yes, the paper ended up publishing two of the stories based on her, creating her first byline in the paper, also getting her in deep trouble with MacArthur's um, men because they didn't want this kind of uh, unpleasant news published back in the United States. Um, and as a result, she was um, going to be terminated unfavorably. And Thurgood Marshall, who is later going to become Supreme Court Justice, and of course the attorney that argues Brown v. Board was an attorney for the NAACP, who'd come to Japan to defend a lot of black soldiers who were being un- unfairly court-martialed. And he helped get her out of the pickle she was in. But here she was heading back to the United States with no job, and the Chicago Defender, Louis Martin, the editor there, offered her a job. And sometimes when I tell people that, they think, oh, it's, he's being charitable. His paper got her in trouble, and so he's now offering her a job. And I think it's rather different. I think Louis Martin recognized that Ethel Payne had enormous skills and instincts of a journalist, and all she needed was training, and that's what he was willing to supply. And he bet right. She ended up being the Chicago Defender's most significant and successful journalist for the remainder of the Defender's life. It still exists, the paper still exists, but for the remainder of its, shall we say, robust life. 
Um, and this and this happens relatively quickly, right? So very quickly. She'd been in Japan for three years. It's at the end of those three years that it happens. And in 1951, she flies back. She spends a year working as a kind of local reporter in Chicago, and then is, is dispatched to Washington to become the Washington correspondent for the Chicago Defender. Um, so you've, you've you mentioned in in the book. Um, so obviously she joins. Uh, 1951 the defender and then by 1952 or by the end of 1952 she's one of the paper's most visible reporters with stories on the yeah. front page you know once every four or five issues throughout that year um very much it's obviously this is a combination of lots of different factors um was there anything that you think was particularly significant maybe her relationship with um the publisher at the paper I think um, I think there are a number of things. I mean, any reporter who's if you look at the life of any reporter in the United States who's successful, they have a parallel that's somewhat similar to conductors in music. Most of the famous conductors we know, Leonard Bernstein, Michael Tilson, Thomas, were unknown until one night they get a call and the main conductor is sick and they have to stand in. And the next day they become a heralded conductor and their career is on its way. So there's always a tremendous amount of luck. Uh, Dan Rather covered a hurricane that suddenly put him to national attention. Um, That kind of thing happened to Ethel Payne. Being thrown into Washington at that particular time when Brown v. Board is about to be decided, when the civil rights movement is getting underway for another version led by civil disobedience in the South, um, she was in the right spot at the right time. Um, people often say that luck is the coincidence of opportunity and preparedness. The elements we discussed a little while ago made her highly prepared to to take advantage of this this coincidence of events to uh, to end up rising up successfully as a journalist. I mean, one of the things Ethel Payne understood, and I don't know if we should say it um, intellectually understood, but emotionally understood, is her readership. When the Chicago Defender was started at the beginning of the 20th century, I, I, I'm going to be off by the statistics, so some scholar is listening at this, please please beg uh, my forgiveness. But approximately half of the African-American population in the United States was illiterate. And here you are starting a newspaper representing their interests. It's quite a challenge. By the 1950s, even though schools were unequal and segregated, African-Americans in growing numbers were able to read. And the paper, of course, flourished with them. But their reading ability would have been fundamentally different than a college-educated white reader picking up the New York Times. So if you look at her copy and the way it's written, it's written very carefully in a very folksy, and I don't mean this in any way in an insulting manner, any more than I would say Jimmy Breslin was a bad journalist. He wasn't. But the copy is written in a very folksy style, using religious allusions, uh, certain kinds of sentences. It's almost like a letter from Ethel Payne, which is one of the reasons why headlines often started using her name. Ethel Payne sees hate in Alabama. Ethel Payne files exclusive report. And in some ways, she was more like Ernie Pyle, who sent these very moving accounts of G.I. Joes back home during World War II. She was sending um, well-written, uh, folksy, personalized accounts of events in a way that connected to her readership. Today, they look odd because, um, 
you have to remember the context in which they were written. So when, when historians put together, for instance, a number of years ago, a collection of civil rights reporting, I fault them for not including Ethel Payne. But I think what was happening is they were looking at the sophisticated reporting they saw in the Boston Globe, the New York Times, for a highly literate audience. And comparing it to hers, they thought hers would have been lacking, but they would have been missing the point. She was writing copy that was perfect for her readers in the same way that Anthony Lewis might have been writing copy that was perfect for the New York Times. So that made her create this this incredibly um, tight emotional bond with her readers. And, you know, the subtitle of my book is The First Lady of the Black Press. And people often say, well, that's kind of a clever title you gave to her. I never gave her that title. That's how she became regarded by her readership. Um, and that was the nickname she was given by the, the last years of her life. And I think that shows you the kind of connection she forged with her readers. This also became politically important. Um, and I'll tell you stories in a while about covering the Montgomery bus boycott. But let's not forget that when Martin Luther King first went north to do fundraising, one of the places he went was Chicago. And the black readers in Chicago certainly knew who Martin Luther King was long before readers of the Chicago Tribune did. Um, so she was an emissary of African Americans on the front lines of the civil rights movement, sending back personal uh, dispatches that illuminated and activated people back home. Um, and, and then, of, of course, not just not just at home, she also has uh, roles reporting abroad for the Defender. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. In, in the same way that you might see someone like Irabelle Thompson at, at Ebony be a kind of pioneering like African-American female correspondent. Um, as an example mm -hmm. of that, um, in uh, in 1957, 1958, there's kind of this interesting sequence involving uh, Nixon. So, if if you could say a little bit about that. Oh yeah, well, it's it's one of the delicious ironies and the joy of playing around with history is that we tend to view people by what we remember of them, and Nixon, of course, is remembered by most Americans in a very bad light because of. Vietnam and Watergate. But the 1950s was a little bit like an Alice in Wonderland story when it comes to civil rights. Um, in 1957, Ethel Payne and a number of civil rights leaders traveled to Ghana. Ghana was the first sub-Saharan country to become uh, gained free from colonial rule, which meant that it was going to be a very powerful image. Um, that would mean that black faces were running a country. Um, and so for African Americans in the United States, this was a really big story. For the American government, this was going to be a big issue. So Eisenhower dispatched his vice president, Richard Nixon, to represent the United States at the independence ceremonies. And famously, Nixon met Martin Luther King for the first time in Ghana at those ceremonies. And King said to him, you know, Mr. Vice President, if you really want to see the struggle for freedom, you might want to consider coming south to Alabama rather than traveling 3,000 miles across the world. It's put Nixon in an awkward position because no Republican was going to go waltzing down into the south at that moment. The south was controlled by um, racist Demo Democrats and, and there were no elected Republican leaders. I mean, just stay clear of that area. But he said to King, if you come to Washington, you can meet with me, and King, in fact, did, and then ended up meeting with Eisenhower. So um, uh, Payne became quite interested in, in Nixon because of this overture. And, um, I, and in 1957, back in the U.S., they were passing the 57 Civil Rights Act. This is the first act since the Civil War on this subject and would be the precursor to the 1964 Civil Rights Act. 
And the main people in the Senate that moment were, was uh, Senator from Massachusetts, John F. Kennedy, the majority leader from Texas. And those two folks hardly wanted a civil rights bill that had tough enforcement measures. Uh, Johnson represented a very racist state, and Kennedy and he were both thinking of running for president. And the idea of being considered Negro-friendly in 1960 would have been uh, something that would have hurt their campaigns. So they were removing the, um, the teeth from the bill. They were letting the bill go through, but all the enforcement mechanisms were being gutted. And Ethel Payne was furious, and she was one of the few reporters who was covering this. In fact, if you read Bob Caro's famous long books about Johnson, he's the only white historian that I know that quotes Ethel Payne's coverage. She would come up to, Ken to Johnson and Kennedy after they got off the floor and said, you know, why are you taking these sections. This is really uh, difficult to understand legislative language, but she was going after them for gutting and weakening the bills. But the one person who was not, the one person who was pushing for the passage of a tougher bill was Richard Nixon. As vice president of the Senate, as vice president of the United States, he provided over the Senate, so he had considerable influence. And he was doing this for a number of reasons. Let's not give him too much altruistic behavior at this moment. One of which is that African Americans had left the Republican Party in 1932 with the election of Roosevelt. Well, it's only 25 years later, later that this bill is being considered. So Nixon thought, well, if we, if the Republicans are in favor of civil rights, they might win back the African American vote. And even though a lot of blacks were, uh, majority of blacks were prohibited from voting in the South, they were voting in the North, and states like Illinois could swing to the Republican side. Secondly, Nixon, like any politician, loves putting the other, the opposition in an awkward place. So to, to give Senate speeches, uh, pointing out that Democrats were not in favor of civil rights was too joyous a moment for Nixon. So, so for a brief shining moment, Nixon, in a sense, is the hero is too strong a word, but the good guy in this 1957 civil rights debate. So this goes on. Uh, Simeon Booker, a reporter for Jet Magazine, and Ethel Payne decide that they ought to have a party for a year after having flown to Ghana. Reporters in the 1950s did not go on junkets the way reporters do now. I mean, when Obama picks up and hops on the Air Force 747 and the planes follow in tow, it's very commonplace for reporters to travel the world with the president, and it's also rather comfortable. In the late 50s, one of the planes going to Ghana broke down and had, had to have its engine replaced in Morocco. I mean, it was an arduous thing. So reporters often held these kind of reunions a year or two later to celebrate having survived the, the junket and all of that. And Simeon Booker said, well, why don't we invite Richard Nixon? And he and Ethel had a good laugh, you know, yeah, sure, he would come and all of that. So they sent an invitation to the vice president, and sure enough, Richard Nixon replied that he and his wife, Pat, would be delighted to join. So on the appointed night, in a black section of, of Washington, D.C., Richard Nixon and his wife and a bottle of bourbon showed up and stayed for the evening. And Jet Magazine's headline, which I don't have in front of me, but I quote, can quote fairly closely, headline is something like, and first, Vice President visits the home of a Negro in Washington, D.C., um, so, you know, Nixon was playing with the Democrats and being in favor of, of civil rights. And I, I, I like to think of sort of an Alice in Wonderland, topsy-turvy version of life back then. But good to her, uh, true to her faith as a journalist, when in 1968 Nixon runs, 
and runs on a law and order campaign, which every African-American knows is code for uh, states' rights and putting blacks back in their place. Um, Ethel Payne doesn't hesitate for a moment in understanding what she's done, what he's doing and challenges him. And I think she kind of feels some disappointment um, because she'd seen Nixon in a different light. Um, she'd been, um, you know, and there's a moment when they're bringing back Whitney Young's body from a, uh, who died in Africa and the president has dispatched a special plane to get him and she's flying on the plane and and then when they fly down to, I, I can't remember if it's Tennessee where he's buried, and Pat Nixon comes and sits with Ethel Payne, there's a moment there where, you know, an unacknowledged moment of, gee, we're very different places. So she traveled a very different path with Richard Nixon than, than most reporters ever did. Uh, that shift with with Nixon then, in, in some ways, is is reversed with with Johnson. So you, you spend a, yes. a, good, a good part of the book talking about um, Payne's kind of battles with Johnson, particularly when he's kind of the majority leader in the Senate. Yep. Um, but then, obviously, sixty four, sixty five, her her opinion is is pretty significantly changed. It is, and and Johnson. There are two figures I think that are unappreciated in American. Um, political history for something they did, Um, and one of which is George Wallace from Alabama, and the other is Lyndon Johnson. And under a federal program, people like Johnson could not survive an election in Texas if they were too much in favor of civil rights. Now, I'm not, civil rights is a moral issue, so I'm not forgiving Johnson for being an opponent of civil rights early on and and gutting the 57, but I'm, I'm giving an explanation. And yet when he rose to the position of being president and representing all Americans, he fundamentally changed his view and became one of the most significant white legislators, although he's president, but white advocates for the the two most significant pieces of civil rights legislation. And the parallel to George Wallace is George Wallace admitted that he was wrong, begged forgiveness, and was eventually elected back governor with a majority of black votes in the state of Alabama. Those kinds of transits are rare in American politics and in many ways is something we want as opposed to people who stubbornly stick to their viewpoints uh, and never change on the circumstances. So Payne was very, very skeptical of Johnson. In 1960, when he wins the nomination, there's a special meeting held at the Democratic National Convention in which a few people who, a couple African-Americans and some others, came to this quiet private meeting and, and Johnson shows up too. And they basically say, don't judge him on the way he'd been, because we've got promises from him that he will be on our side. Um, Payne doubted this. Most African-Americans doubted that. Uh, They voted for Kennedy. They didn't vote for Johnson. And when Johnson began to exert himself as a national leader, uh, they saw that that, that he had been right. He was true to his promise at the convention. And, uh, And Johnson was, I mean, Payne was one of the first to admit that, gee, he really did deliver in the sense that he had promised to deliver. And, and Johnson was also very sensitive, um, very wily politician. In 1964, when he signs the Civil Rights Act, and signing acts is a tremendously important symbolic gesture in American politics. Presidents take a huge assortment of pens. They use them to sign their name, meaning they, they like Obama, would do one half of the O in Obama, put the pen down, pick up another, and do that. And then they... They award these pens. They give these pens to people who are influential in creating this piece of legislation. And so the usual suspects were there, the major leaders of the Senate. Robert F. Kennedy was still alive, and he was there as 
attorney general, and he got four or five pens. Martin Luther King was there. Ralph Abernathy was there. And Johnson had insisted that Ethel Payne be there. And what he perceived, even though he was not a Chicago reader, uh, Chicago defender reader, he had perceived that Ethel Payne had provided this extraordinary role in linking the civil rights movement uh, in a way to her people, if you pardon the expression, but that's the way he would have viewed it, um, and activating them and creating the political base for the act. Um, so he, he gave her a pen from that signing and from the 65 uh, Voting Rights Act. Um, what he failed to understand um, and what I think historians have failed to understand is we now venerate Ethel Payne for her achievements, but one of the things we don't seem to perceive is um, how vast the legacy of the vastly different treatment the various media gave to the civil rights movement. Um, if you look at newspapers like the New York Times and the Washington Post in 64 and 65, which would be things that Johnson and other liberals would have been reading, they viewed they portrayed the passage of these acts in many ways as munificent gifts being given to a disenfranchised population. But if you read Ethel Payne's coverage in that in the Afro-American paper or the Amsterdam News or other black papers, they viewed it as victories, hard-fought victories won by the people putting their lives on the line for rights that were overdue to them. And so it's a very different portrayal of what the civil rights movement was doing and accomplishing. And I think that's one of the reasons why a number of whites fell fell away from the movement in 68, or in summer 67 and others, when there were riots, because in some ways these liberals who had seen the seen it through the white established press were asking themselves, well, what else do these folks want? We've given them everything that they need. Whereas African Americans had seen these victories as victories on the path to a more complete victory, but hardly giving them everything they needed, including economic equality. So those are, those, to my mind, some of the very important issues underlining an evaluation of Ethel Payne's life and her role in, in the media at that point. One of the, uh, I guess you might say, curiosities of this kind of moment um, in Payne's life is actually that she's kind of been a little bit estranged from the, the defender at this point. Um, oh, yeah. So she yeah. kind of, uh, at Senstack, John Senstack, the, the kind of publisher of the paper, wants her to move back to Chicago um, and then she disagrees and then she ends up leaving the paper for a period. Um, but then uh, just in about, I believe it's 66, um, Sengstack comes back with kind of an interesting proposition for Payne. She does. It, um, you know, journalists having fights with editors is as common as marital disputes in most societies. And she wasn't uh, exempt from that. And she did leave the paper for a number of years. She worked on voter registration. She worked for a labor union. But she really missed being part of the press. And Sensac, excuse me for calling, in 66, um, offered her a job to come back, and he asked her if she would be interested in going to cover Vietnam. Now, this, this job offer, she was unaware, but has a little interesting background. In 66 and in 67, um, the majority of Americans are growing disillusioned about the Vietnam War. It seemed like an endless war, and their kids were being sent off and killed. Uh, and they, 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 except for the elite, it was very hard to get out of the draft. Um, but the one population that still, in polling data, supported the war was African Americans. 
And the reason black families supported uh, the war more so than whites is that the military was really a meritocracy. Yes, there was racism and lots of awful things that happened in the military, but people like Colin Powell could rise up through the ranks. You could have a black soldier giving orders to a white soldier. Um, you, you could succeed in a way that you could not succeed in American corporations. So most black families had a member of the family in some form, whether it's a son or a nephew, in the military. So they tend to be more supportive of the war. And the White House was aware of this, so they thought it would be great if black newspapers managed to send more reporters to Vietnam and they were prepared to ease their way by providing transportation. So when Sensac made this offer, Ethel Payne was unaware that in some ways the paper was being manipulated by the White House. So the newspaper announces that it will have its own headline reads, it will have its own man in Nam. And then the subheadline reads, but it's a girl, exclamation mark, which certainly gives you a sense of the, the times back then that women going to combat zone was a rare thing. She went there with the mission to write about black soldiers. It wasn't just, she wasn't there to cover the war. She was there to cover a particular aspect of it. And she sent back a lot of interesting stories. She sent back the stories that, that warmed a lot of people's hearts, I mean, particularly African-Americans, because she found examples of black soldiers leading white soldiers into combat. This is the first desegregated war for Americans. She found black uh, med medical officers being um, cheered and, and hailed by Vietnamese who couldn't care less what color they were. She also found examples of racism, things like that, but her coverage focused on these achievements as well as the downsides. As a result, she, in a sense, didn't pay attention to the war. And so, like many reporters who went to Vietnam, she missed the bigger story, which was that the war was, in a sense, fraudulently being being carried on, that the daily body count by this point had exceeded the entire population of North Vietnam, that, um, that, that these things were, that the military was being dishonest, that the war wasn't being won, uh, things that David Haberstam were picking up on, but she didn't. So years later, she came to regret her coverage. But nonetheless, it, it, showed, um, it showed her importance that she was dispatched to do this. And interestingly enough as well, um, it, it also showed an example of her reporting that, you know, I linked it earlier to Ernie Pyle. Well, here she was being Ernie Pyle because she was in a war zone and her style of writing was really fascinating. She'd not only write sort of anecdotally about what these black soldiers were facing, but she often included the black soldier's APO address in her copy as well as where he came from, the, what street in Detroit he came from. That kind of connective tissue you would have never seen in the white population. But black Americans felt linked in a way that whites didn't. And also it was a suggestion to um, folks back home of how you, you know, might send some cookies to this fellow. Well, again, that, that seems trivial and light, but it represents the kind of personal journalism that she offered to her readers, which is why she was so uh, linked to them and so loved by her readers um, because of her approach. And, and Vietnam was certainly an example of that, although by her own admission, she in a sense missed the bigger story. Um, and she returns uh, to the U.S. And, and takes up a role that's um, essentially this similar to the role that she had as Washington correspondent for for the Defender. Um, yeah, it was disappointing. I mean, she was she she gets brought back to Chicago to, in a sense, be an editor. She spends a little time in, in Washington, and she's talked into coming back to Chicago to be an editor. And I, 
you know, when you've left your home city for a long time and traveled the world, it's sometimes hard. And she really found that existence hard. I, I jokingly say that her favorite seat was not at the desk in the paper, but on a plane. And she ended up becoming a global traveler for years um, and twisted that position into that. How um, how much of a, of a jolt was that? I mean, she'd, she'd grown up in Chicago. It was a city that... Um, she may maybe had some mixed feelings about, but it was one that was it appears to be close to her heart. But obviously, not living there for such a long time, um, she was she was disconnected. I mean, she so left Chicago that she was disconnected with the politics of the city. I mean, she was thrilled by Harold Washington's election, but at that point, she was a professor in the South. I I think she felt out of place. The city had changed. Um, she hadn't been there since 1951. That's 27 years of being away. And frankly, I think she was bored by her work. I mean, she had had some of the most exciting reporting to do, and she wasn't ready to give up and just sit at a desk and edit other people's copy and write some columns. Um, I mean, one of Ethel Payne's differences with a lot of other people is that when she began to cover the black freedom struggle in the United States, she saw it linked to the larger freedom struggles around the world, that apartheid was part of it, decolonialization was part of it. So as early as 1955, she went off to the Bandung Conference, she traveled the globe, and so at the period when she was editor, she used whatever means she could, means that reporters today would probably look down on, uh, but to travel to Africa and to cover what was going on there. And frequently these trips were paid for by the governments in Africa, things that reporters would frown on. But let's keep in mind, the Chicago Defender had no money. She had no money. If she was going to get there, that was the only way she could. And um, so she ended up going to Africa regularly and writing about it and giving talks about it. And she became very active um, in the anti-apartheid fight. She moves back to Washington after giving up her job at the Defender. And um, she's arrested at the South African Embassy. And um, in 1990, the year before she dies, um, uh, Nelson Mandela is freed. And she travels to South Africa, which is a very arduous trip for somebody who's 79. And she interviews Nelson Mandela, and she saved a picture of him. He'd come back from a trip very late that night, and she was at his house in the morning. And there's a picture of Ethel Payne with Nelson Mandela in his bathrobe. And Ethel, one of Ethel Payne's charming qualities, particularly for me as a biographer, is she was always filled with self-deprecating humor. She was not an egocentric person. And uh, she wrote on the side of the picture, lots of people got to interview Nelson Mandela. I'm the only one who did so while he was in his PJs. Um, so she always kept a you know kind of smile about her work, uh, but uh, she remained committed, and she was also freer at that point because she was freed from a lot of the strictures of journalism. So she wrote a column. She was, became much more of an, a visible advocate for civil rights and black freedom than she could be as a, as a reporter. Um, and just just to finish on on that question, really, this this idea that um, the role of, of Payne as an advocate or, or as an activist and um, at points, at points in the in in the text, there's there's um, moments where her editors always kind of physically rip up copy because they think it's too um, kind mm-hmm. of partisan. Um, how how did Payne look to to balance that? Um, that well, there it's 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 complicated. When she first began working as a White House correspondent. She realized early on that every question she was asking about civil rights was something that affected her and her family and her friends personally, as contrasted to the reporter next to her who might be covering farm news, 
uh, or the reporter next to her who's covering um, uh, transportation department. These things weren't personally linked to her, but for her to leave her apartment in the morning trying to figure out where she might be able to go to the bathroom during the day, whether a cab would pick her up, what restaurant would let her in. Um, these issues of personal rights and, and civil rights were intimately linked with her, so she felt she couldn't be, quote-unquote, objective. She rejected the, the press um, worship of objectivity. Instead, she adopted a, a criteria of being fair. And on the whole, if you read her copy of people, even some of the really gruesomely racist senators, she treated them with fairness. Granted, she let them hang by their own words, but she didn't resort to adjectives um, and things like that that would, would, would represent advocacy journalism. But she used the power of journalism as a form of advocacy. Most of the conflict she got with in some ways with her editors back home, wasn't as much her advocacy, but her failure to, to follow certain journalistic rules. She was, again, not formally trained. And a couple times she wrote some stories um, that, you know, she hadn't gotten checked with some people to get the, the second point of view and things like that. Um, but they weren't really restraining her advocacy when she did it at her best, which was really using the power of journalism to illuminate the injustice rather than writing a pro-change piece of, uh, of, uh, of copy. Um, and so, you know, she she's a, a great reminder. I mean... Um, we have the same sort of tradition in uh, journalism of poverty, uh, journalism about development, that in many ways the, the act of reporting is an act of, of uh, change, of advocacy. When a reporter, when a newspaper, for instance, decides that they're going to do, uh, or a television network, a 10-part series on uh, uh, food uh, insecurity in the United States, power of that publication will end up putting that subject on the national agenda. The press is an agenda setter, setter. And so one of the things Ethel Payne did by having a seat at the table in the 1950s is by merely asking questions of those people in power, she was helping put that issue on the national agenda, forcing people to cope with it in one way or another. And that, that still holds today. And that's, you know, she viewed that as a form of advocacy. I tend to view that as a form of journalism with an advocacy, advocacy aim, but not advocacy journalism. Um, I think that's that's a good place to uh, to end our talk today. Um, okay. Just uh, before before you go, um, we're just going to give you the opportunity if if uh, listeners want to find out more about your work or um, if you're so you mentioned you're working or recently um, finished in a new uh, book that's coming out. If you wanted to say a little bit more about that, sure. I, well, if if people you know are interested in my work, uh, my new book will be out in April, and it's called The Ambulance Drivers. Hemingway, Dos Passos, and a Friendship Made and Lost in War. And it's about World War One, and it's about their friendship, and it's about how their literature is shaped by that. Um, I have also written Kindle singles on things like the attempted assassination of, of Henry Clay Frick. I've um, written a, a Kindle single on the radio operator, The Last Man in Tibet When China Invaded. Um, and, you know, it's easy. I mean, if somebody hits Google and just puts my full name, James McGrath Morris, and they'll see my work. Um, but, um, uh, you know, I, I'm always interested in linking with readers, so I'm not hard to find. I don't hide my email on the Internet. That's great. Thanks very much for talking with me today. Well, thank you for the time. I appreciate chatting with you. 
You've been listening to New Books in African American Studies, part of the New Books Network. Support for the network is generously provided by Amherst College Press. For more information, go to newbooksnetwork.com, where you can subscribe via iTunes or follow on Facebook and Twitter. Goodbye.